joining us from afar. Glad that you're here with us this morning. We have entered into, of course, a new season of the church calendar, the season of Epiphany, which Epiphany means to make known or to, to like reveal or to show. And it's this season in which we tell these great stories about the life of Christ, and we ask what's being made known here, what's being revealed or shown, and then how do we respond? In fact, that's how we describe Epiphany. It's this season of revelation and response. And today's story that we read just a bit ago is the famous um, wedding at Cana story. And I'm excited about this. I, I love this story for some reason. Um, and it's not just because there's wine, because I don't really like wine. But um, when, when I was writing my dissertation last year, much of my research involved this guy named Jacques Lacan and his theory of language. It's not Jacques Lacan. It's Jacques Lacan, different, completely different guy. Lacan was this French um, psychoanalytic theorist and philosopher. And um, to talk about language, linguistics, he would often use the book Robinson Crusoe. They may have to read that in school out of the five people who are in this room. Nobody did. Well, it's about um, this man who's stranded on a deserted island all by himself and about how he tries to survive and not go completely crazy. And Crusoe, in the book, had been on this island for several years. Um, and then one day, he's just walking along the beach, and he sees a single human footprint in the sand on his island. And he discovered that it was Jesus who was carrying him all along while he was alone. No, I'm just kidding. It's not that. That was Cole's joke. Cole gave me that joke. <laughs> just kidding. It freaked him out, of course. Totally freaked him out, because it was not his footprint. It was like clear on the other side of the island where he hardly ever went. Plus, it didn't match the shape of his own foot. So this footprint was a sign to him um, that he could immediately interpret. It meant somebody else had been on his island. Now, Lacan says that the footprint is what is called a natural sign because its meaning can be interpreted naturally, kind of in the same way that like a robin knows to mate with other robins and not to try to mate with a blue jay. Um, the only thing that leaves a human footprint is a human foot. And even if the you know, bearer of the foot that made the print was no longer around, Crusoe knew what the footprint meant. It, it, was, it had this natural Meaning somebody else's foot had been on that beach. And whoever it was had left this trace behind in the form of a footprint. So he said, this is a natural sign. But then he does this experiment. He says, just imagine that what Crusoe next does is wipe away the footprint and smooth the sand out perfectly so that there's no trace of the footprint left behind. And then in its place, he grabbed a couple of sticks and placed them sort of in the shape of a cross there, marking the spot where the footprint had once been. And, and Lacan said, this is the invention of a linguistic sign, a language sign. And there's a big difference between a natural sign and a linguistic sign, he said. For one thing, most animals can actually interpret many natural signs. Like they can interpret smells that we leave behind. Um, sounds, traces of our actions. Some can even distinguish human footprints from their own footprints. Um, one, one does not have to be um, immersed in language or speak a language in order to interpret natural signs. But um, only humans, Lacan said, can interpret linguistic signs. And one of the reasons is a linguistic sign has to be arbitrary. It, its meaning has to be completely distinct from 
the, the sign itself, like the two are divorced. They have nothing to do with one another. Um, the two sticks in the form of a cross had no intrinsic connection to that footprint. They, they just didn't. He could have used this shell or a rock or a coconut, anything, to do, do the same thing. Uh, and so the cross itself, is the sign is arbitrary. It's distinct from its own meaning, whereas the footprint is not distinct from its meaning. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Are you tracking? Okay. So a footprint can only mean a foot has been there. That's a natural sign. The cross sticks um, laying where the footprint used to be could mean almost anything or nothing at all. So they're distinct from their meaning. That's a linguistic sign. It has to be sort of arbitrary. So when some guys made a footprint, or some guy's foot made a footprint on the sand, it created a natural sign. But when Crusoe erases it and then puts a a cross or inserts this symbol in its place, he created a linguistic sign, a sort of his own little language that only he could interpret, which turns out to be kind of important. Nobody else outside of Crusoe's little linguistic imagination could ever know the meaning of that cross in the sand, which actually kind of teaches us something about the nature of language and how we make meaning from it. Lacan was funny. He, he thought he was trying to, in some ways, reduce psychoanalytic theory or philosophy into um, math, and he's terrible at it, but um, he, he loved to diagram things to explore the relationships between concepts, and there are several different concepts at work here within this linguistic sign. Hang with me just for one minute on the linguistic stuff, because this is kind of cool. First is that language always begins with something called a signifier. Language um, always involves like a word or a symbol. It can be spoken or written. And it, it signifies something else. So this is like Crusoe's cross. It's a symbol or uh, a word that's somehow distinct from its own meaning. But there it is. It's kind of completely arbitrary like the cross. And then second, in language there must also be a signified, like the idea or the concept that's, that's kind of communicated or meant to be communicated by the signifier. So for Crusoe, this would be the footprint and the meaning behind it, that he's, he's not alone. So in this little diagram of the linguistic sign, Lacan would often use, uh, always use a capital S for the signifier and a lowercase s to represent the signified. And then between the two, he would put this bar. And the bar is important. The bar represents the act of interpreting a sign, interpretation, meaning making. So in order to have a language, it's not enough just to have a signifier. There has to be also a signified, and there has to be an interpreter who carries meaning sort of across the bar, sort of quilting together um, a signifier with its meaning in that instance. In fact, he, he would call this crossing the bar. So, so when this happens, a linguistic sign is created, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we're using language. Lacan called it crossing the bar. It's, it's stitching together kind of an arbitrary signifier with its signified. And, and here's the weird part. This is the weird part of it. The meaning of words like this, signifiers like this, the meaning is not contained in the word itself, in the signifier, in the symbol. That thing's completely arbitrary. The meaning has to be generated by somebody who speaks the language. Like, 
Crusoe, right? He had to interpret the sigmar. This is really obvious in, in a lot of the English language because so many of our words have several meanings. I looked it up this week, and um, if you think about the word set, S-E-T, um, it has so many meanings. Like, you can set something down. You can get on your mark, get set, go. You can win a set in tennis. You can go set in, in spades. According um, to the Guinness Book of, World, Book of World's Records, the, the word set has the most usages in all of any word in the English language. It has 430 different usages. In fact, the, um, in the Oxford English Dictionary, the, the um, entry for the word set is 60,000 words long. That's like its own book. It's crazy. Um, and so the meaning of the word set is not contained in the letters S-E-T. It's just not. That can mean 430 different things at least. It must be generated by an interpreter, interpreter who understands the language. And it, it turns out this is true of all language, of all signs and all signifiers. The meaning of a signifier is not contained within the signifier itself. It has to be supplied by a speaking subject. And it has to be someone who actually knows the language. So like in the case of Robinson Crusoe, if some random person walks by the sticks on the beach, they, they might not even notice them. And even if they did notice them, they would have no way of knowing what they would mean. And this is because meanings have to be generated by people, human beings, who speak the language. For instance, a dog or a cat could never be able to interpret Crusoe's little private language there either. So, so in order to interpret the meaning of a linguistic sign, the sign, a person has to be initiated into that language. They have to speak the same language in order to cross the bar and construct some kind of meaning. We don't really think about this kind of stuff very often, but humans are the only creatures who do this sort of thing. We're the only ones who make and interpret signs, linguistic signs. And so in a, in a most basic sense, what we're describing here is language and meaning. And it all hinges on our ability to interpret signs. And only humans have this ability. We can construct meaning out of otherwise seemingly arbitrary signs. But we can do this for one reason, and that is that we were raised as speaking subjects. And we live in a world that's just, just saturated with words, saturated with language, with linguistic signs. So, so hold on to that idea, because I, I want to crash that whole idea into this story of the wedding at Cana. Um, our text comes from the book of John, the Gospel of John, which um, scholars believe actually originally ended in verse 20, or in um, chapter 20. And then 21 was kind of tacked on by John, the same writer, but a little bit later to address some specific concerns. And part of the reason they think this is at the end of chapter 20, John tells you why he's written the book. And then there's this addendum. And what he says there is, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. 
So John just says, this is why I'm doing this. I want my readers to believe Jesus is Messiah and to have life in his name. And the way he, he does this is by telling the readers about these signs. And, and um, Jesus, he said, did many more signs, but he's using just seven of them. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a lot more miracles in their gospel. Um, and they call them miracles. John only uses seven, and he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs, which is important because signs have to be interpreted in order to be understood. The meaning of a sign isn't contained within the, the signifier itself, the action itself, the, the actual miraculous event here. The meaning must be supplied by an interpreter, someone who speaks the language of the gospel. And in this case, the only people who do are the, the, the writer of the gospel of John. This is originally the writer of the gospel of John. And in the story, Mary and Jesus, they get it. The disciples don't really get it till the, in the end. So in his gospel, um, John, for this, for this first sign, um, will write about a signifier, which is wine. He uses a bunch of signifiers throughout the book. There's all kinds of things. Water, wine, hunger, bread, bodies, blindness, sight, death, life. And in each of those cases, there's a meaning um, in the event, but then there's this meaning that goes beyond the event itself. And so he's writing to try to get people to speak this new language, to understand the meaning um, behind the event, to interpret the deeper meaning of the event. Why? He says, so you can believe Jesus is Messiah and have life in his name. A different kind of life than everybody else who doesn't speak this language. If you look at John, there are, there are seven of these signs. Turning water into wine, the cleansing of the temple was a sign, healing the Roman official's son, healing the lame man, feeding the multitude, healing the blind man, and raising Lazarus from the dead. That's seven. And for each of them, there's kind of a natural event that happened. And then there's this linguistic sign. And John wants us to be able to read these and interpret these, um, the deeper meaning, the, the gospel meaning behind them. And this is, this is why we tell it during Epiphany. Because Epiphany is about revelation and then response. What's, what's actually being revealed here? That's what we're wondering. Let me read it again. John chapter 2. Um, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And then it just kind of breaks in. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern, of that is, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother bypasses him, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then we're told, now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. He who has ears, let him hear, right? But then, but then he says, you have kept the good wine until now. And then there's 
this little interpretation here. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is, this is the first sign in the Gospel of John. It's just rich with, like, old Hebrew symbolism. First of all, it begins with this phrase, on the third day. If you remember, the Gospel of John is organized by seven days because it's kind of revamping the story of creation from Genesis in seven days, right? It's reinterpreting that Genesis narrative. That's why John starts the same way Genesis starts. It starts in the beginning. He starts in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This tells us he's doing a kind of creation retelling story. And so we're told that the wedding here takes place on the third day. Well, um, what, what happens on the third day in the story of creation? It's the creation of vines and growing things. Vines produce grapes. Grapes produce wine. Wine is a symbol of abundance for the people of Israel, the good life for God's people. So this is a sign about um, this wedding in Cana thing on the third day. Is, it's going to be a sign about abundance, what it looks like when the world is arranged the way God wants it to be arranged for his people. Now, as Christians, we hear the third day and immediately probably think resurrection. And, and for us, that's in there definitely too, because so, John's writing after the resurrection. So this is a sign of um, turning water into wine that happens on the third day. So, so all, all that meaning is packed in there, both what, things were what was supposed to happen on the third day, the, the growing of, of vines and grapes and, and thereby flourishing and enjoying God's cre creation. And also, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be telling us what happened on the third day after Christ's death. So there they are. They're on the third day, and they're at a wedding. And the wedding itself is, is a huge symbol. We just talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, the, the, the movements of a wedding ceremony. It, it is a symbol of new creation in the Jewish imagination because out of two things, a third thing is being formed. This new family is being created when two people come together. And wedding feasts, we, we went through this. They, they lasted, you know, several days up to a week and they would pull out all the stops. It was like the one time you just, you didn't spare any expense and you just let everybody feast. You would kind of sleep it off the next day, and then you would hang around and eat and talk and maybe go hunting or go play around. And then at the night, there'd be another party, and they just did this every day for a week. And, and we're told that at this wedding, though, in the middle of the thing, record scratch, the wine gave out. And wine um, is an important symbol also to the Hebrew mind. It's, it's a symbolic part of like the Passover meal, of the Shabbat, um, Sabbath, dinner. It's an important messianic symbol. In fact, the prophets were forever talking about Messiah and the kind of life Messiah would usher in for them, and they would use wine to describe it. Let me read from a few of them. Jeremiah said, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain and the wine and the oil. Amos said, the time is surely coming, says the Lord, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Sounds like that's Sweet Mary Wine, have you seen that <laughs> meme? It tells you a lot about my twisted um, sense of humor. The mouth shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. That's Amos. 
And Hosea said, they shall again live beneath my shadow. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fragrance shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So over and over, Jewish people, the prophets especially, would use the imagery of a wedding banquet with fine wine to signify what things will be like when Messiah comes and the world is finally kind of put to rights. The kingdom of God comes near. It was this promise of a good future with abundance and rejoicing with food and wine and friends for everyone. And, and when the Jewish people dreamed about a future, this is, this is how they would talk about it. They'd tell stories about this Messiah who would come and weddings and, and lavish parties and wine flowing freely and everyone drinking and celebrating there would be enough for all who wanted to join in. And then the bomb that drops in the middle of the story is they're at a wedding this sign of, you know, something new, new creation, and the wine, the sign of abundance, has, has given out. And so there's a sense in which there's a natural sign happening there in the moment, which is, if the wine is gone, the wedding is over too early, and everybody would be bummed. They just got to go home. They, they needed, needed drinks to have the party. But there's a deeper sense in which there's a linguistic interpretation to be made which is something like the wine has run out for Israel itself, at least in its current configuration. The party's kind of over. And through Jesus, through Messiah, God is doing something new. And, and in the story, it's really only Jesus and Mary who understand this deeper in interpretation. It's, it's a linguistic sign that's going to be created here. And he performs this Miracle in Cana. It says, the wine gave out. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And he does a little deal about what, big whoop. Like, what does that mean to you and me? It's kind of an odd interaction there. He's a little short with her. Actually, scholars kind of disagree on if he's being disrespectful or, or not. For sure he's being direct. What concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. So there's kind of a natural sign going on here which is, he's saying, look, you can't treat me like a vending machine. Like, my job is not to keep everyone at this wedding in sodas and beer, okay? But then on the linguistic level, there's a deeper meaning. He, he's saying, look, if I start doing this, if I press play on my ministry, there's no stopping it. And I'm not sure I'm ready for that because he seemed to know how it would end. And then we're, we're told his mother maybe had more confidence in him than he had in himself. She looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do, which should sound familiar to us. If you remember um, the Exodus stuff we went through um, last summer, Joseph and Pharaoh. Remember, Joseph or Pharaoh was having these dreams, and Joseph interpreted them, warning him about this famine that was coming. So Pharaoh says, okay, you're in charge. You take care of the grain for seven years of plenty. You have a storage program and a way to disseminate it. When the famine came, the people cried out to Pharaoh because the bread had run out. That's what it says. So it's not wine there, it's bread. And then if you remember what Pharaoh said, this is it, Genesis 41, 55. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, and then he says, do whatever he tells you to do. So John's borrowing this line from the Exodus story, which is their biggest narrative. They would know this. Instead of bread giving out, it's wine giving out. 
And Mary seems to know that Jesus can fix this. But Jesus is almost like, isn't this a little on the nose? I mean, we're at a wedding on, on the third day, and it, there's wine, the symbol of abundance. Israel's a vineyard, right? The wine is given out. He's like, like people are going to connect the dots here, Mom. So for, for Jesus, this is almost like his Moses at the burning bush moment where he's not, he doesn't want to go. He doesn't do it yet. But just like Moses, he, he, he ends up changing his mind because we're told, verse 6, now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, why is this detail important? That they're stone jars and, and that they're so large. Why that detail? Well, according to Jewish law, Earthen pottery, like jars or wash basins made out of um, pottery, could um, contract uncleanness. And so um, it could be, it become unclean. You can't do your purification rites in an earthen thing. You had to have a stone jar to do the Jewish rites of purification, which involves several of these in a row where you would go down the line and, and, and wash your hands. So stone could not become unclean. So that's where you did your purification. And Jesus says, fill them all the way to the top here, and then scoop off a little bit, take it to the, the guy in charge of the feast, and at some point between when they filled the water up and they took it to the guy doing the feast, the water transformed into wine. And not just wine. They make a big deal of it. It's like the best. Fine wine. And again, this, the symbolism would not be lost on a Jewish reader. This, this old vessel, these stone jars, they're about purity and the law. And it's, it's about a purity code. And these things were giving, given brand new content that's about celebration and joy and abundance. And Jesus is messing with their means of purification for Israel. Like, like all this washing that they had to do, this is okay to kind of help people feel like they were clean again, but it never seemed to last for very long. They were always washing, washing, but never really getting clean, especially on the inside in like a personal sense, and for sure as like a, a, a communal sense, as a nation, um, in the way that they organized their common life together, the systems they had of economics and stuff. So, so the, the old purity codes could never bring them joy and abundance and celebration, not for everyone. It couldn't keep the party going. They always ran out, especially for those who were on the margins. So they could kind of make you ritually clean, clean in terms of status, but they couldn't make you joyful. And so Jesus performs this miracle as a sign. It's a sign that has to be interpreted. It's, it's a natural sign that means the party in Cana can keep going, but it's also this linguistic sign, which is what John's meaning to create, that says Israel has had some good wine, and for a long time, it's, it's been enough, but that party is in jeopardy. The wine has run out. It's no longer doing what it's intended to do. This is dirty water in, in stone jars. Meanwhile, the party's over for most of the guests. But when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that situation 
has changed. That's what John is trying to signal here. Notice, by the way, that he didn't tell him to, you know, wreck the jars, the stone jars. He didn't say tip, tip them over and break them and crush them, destroy them. The, the sign was the introduction of something new right there in the middle of the symbol, the old symbol of the stone jars. So he's not rejecting the Jewish people and saying, I'm doing this whole new religion called Christianity. That's not it. He turned water, meant for ritual purification, into wedding wine. This is his sign. Um, and so it has to be interpreted within Israel, not just like in 21st century fashion, right? And, and so this is a sign about Israel's future and about the future of the entire world. There's about to be a huge shift in the way that we understand God and what God is doing in the world. Instead of the constant washing, 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 and never being really clean, in, in Hebrew, um, it's mikvah, mikvah, mikvah. Instead of that, just ceremonially cleansing over and over, meeting this requirement and that requirement, making this sacrifice, always washing and never being clean. Instead of all of that, he gives this sign, the wedding in Cana, and turns the basins meant for keeping purity codes into these vessels containing the most expensive wine they can imagine. It's the sign of lavish abundance and joy. There's enough for everyone. And from now on, the kingdom is not going to be about purity codes. It's going to be more like just eating and drinking with close friends who have nothing else to do, just hang around and enjoy life. Because... Everyone can belong to this new family. And part of what we're supposed to interpret it is we've been invited to this party and there's enough for everyone. It's, it's no longer going to be wash, wash, wash and never get clean. It's going to be like sitting at a table with friends old and new and laughing and eating and drinking and telling stories with nothing to do but just delight in the goodness of being alive. And there's no fear that the wine or bread will run out because there's always enough. Just do whatever he tells you, Mary says, and you'll begin to see that what the kingdom of God is really like when people start to reorganize everything so that everyone can flourish. So the meaning of this sign, in, in the linguistic sense, the deeper sense, is that God is showing up to fill the whole world with an abundance of joy. And the question will no longer be, are you holy enough, kosher enough? Are you pure or clean enough? Did you do your obligatory washings? Did you make the right sacrifice and pay your temple tax on time? And do you have the right Jewish pedigree? That's all gone. Now the only question will be, do you want to come to the table? But there's going to be some losers here. There's going to be some people that you can't stand or think are wrong. This is a standing invitation. I think when, when we think of the, the wedding at Cana, it's a sign of what the kingdom is going to be like, about who's in and who's out and who's acceptable and, and guilty and who's right and wrong. It's just saying, come to the table. I mean, that sticks in my mind that if when we're interpreting this sign, Jesus turns the water of purity codes into the wine of a wedding celebration. It's crazy. 
I mean, no wonder he was hesitant to do it. This is on the nose. And it's lavish. It's like over the top. Six stone bases, basins, 20, 30 gallons each. Some, some estimated they were more like 40. So it, it, the middle is some estimate. That's around 180 gallons of wine. I converted it into bottles. That's pushing 1,000 bottles of wine. Like, translation, there's plenty. There, this is going to go for a while. There's more than enough wine. There's more than enough abundance. There's more than enough, what, what do you need? Grace? Friendship? There's more than enough good work to do. What do you need? There's more than enough of that when we start to organize under the lordship of Christ. No more washing, 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 never get clean. There's this banquet and it's lavish and it's over the top and it's joyful and there's more than enough for everyone for whatever they need. That's the sign. And it's a linguistic sign. It requires interpretation. It's kind of weird. And this is honestly what I think. I think there's a sense in which our lives become our true interpretation of Jesus' miraculous sign. What you believe he's really doing and saying here becomes the way that you live your life. And it's either like he, he turned the water into wine just to prove that he's God and powerful, so we should give our allegiance to him. Which leads to kind of this stingy, closed-off, legalistic, selfish way of living that's, that can still be stuck in scarcity and, and exclusion. Or we can read it, I think the way John intends it to be read, that the kingdom of God is this generous, opened-up, grace-filled, loving, and self-sacrificing way that's just full of abundance and inclusion. You can go clear back to Lacan and Robinson Crusoe. Um, for all of us, at one point, at some point in our life, many of us as part of Redemption Church, this is almost like learning a whole new language. It's definitely not the language that the world around us speaks. It's really the language of grace and I think the only way to interpret this, the true meaning of, of this, it's joyful. And I really do, I hope this is what we're, what we're about at Redemption Church, and I hope that you will all come along for the journey during this epiphany season. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this crazy story that John just throws it right here in the beginning of the Gospel of John. And it's kind of this stark, in-your-face moment where he says, I'm tired of the purity codes. I would really like there to be joy and abundance with my people. And I pray that um, you would help us see how we can interpret our lives in light of this story. Help us to see the signs in our, own, in our own life and to respond with love and grace. Amen. I invite those of you who are joining with us at home and anyone here in the building, um, we're going to receive.
communion um, now. The reason we do this is that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it 